We've come back to this place for the joy, for the wonder, for the excitement. We come here to feel joy, sadness, love, fear, triumph. We come here to think and to have our minds challenged. When the image is framed to perfection, when the sound envelops you, when the music begins to soar, we take flight to go somewhere new, to remember where we came from, to imagine where we can go. Because in a place like this, everything feels right. Why did it have to be snakes? Get in, loser. We're going shopping. all right? Yep. Two corpses. Everything's fine. I'm your huckleberry. Get away from her, you bitch. Are you not entertained? I'm going to make them an offer. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'll have what she's having. Welcome to another episode of In a Place Like This. I'm Chris Michael Smith, joined today by Edmundo Sanchez Jr. Hi. <laughs> so Edmundo, tell us a little bit about yourself. At least for work, I work part-time at Disney. Um, big Disney fan myself. I really do like animation and comedies a lot lately. Just, I don't know, the, the world's kind of a scary place, so like heavy movies, I don't really go after them too often. So something like lighter and brighter, like the subject matter at hand that we're going to talk about. Great, <laughs> great movie, but balanced with the the other half of heavy stuff. It's, it's cool, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. And we just last weekend went to go see Killers of the Flower Moon, which was very heavy. Definitely. But a good story overall. <laughs> it was like, amazing. It, I loved it. Yeah. No, definitely. Uh, what's, what is your favorite movie? Uh, that's a trick question. Uh, t- a, not a trick. A tough question. Um usually i i guess if it was like since i talked about animation and working at disney um my go-to disney movie is aladdin that was definitely one of those movies that i remember my mom and dad would always say it was like i would get the vhs remember vhs yes (laughs) yes and like rewind the movie after watching it and then watch it again and over and over like as a kid like it was like i knew all the words definitely from beginning to end in that one that was me with the little mermaid oh my god and also beauty and the beast and also aladdin <laughs> no that's a, that's a good choice that that is a really good pick uh-huh. i remember seeing that one in theaters i'm that old so <laughs> yeah no it was it, it was an experience the genie had seven-year-old me like in stitches yes it was amazing i loved all of his jokes Little did I know, exposed to drag so early on, and that scene of him as a pilot, or like the, the steward. Here, 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 here. <laughs> Should have known then. <laughs> Should have known. Should have known. Is there anything else you'd like to briefly geek out about uh, before we begin our discussion today? I mean, I'm a super big fan of just theme parks in general. Like, I do work at Disney partly because it helps, you know, supplement my pay as a part time job, like extra money, but I do enjoy it, you know. It's one of those places that I just, I've always loved theme parks and roller coasters and, you know, getting, like, to go away from the world for just a little bit. Same. Like, for me, like, even when I'm not going to theme parks, I'm, like, on YouTube checking out, like, Defunct Land and stuff like yes, that. Like, yes, same. I'll yeah. do walkthroughs of other parks that I hope to go to. And... I'll, like, go and, like, yeah, I'm probably not going to go to this park anytime soon, so let me watch their Nighttime Spectacular. Yes, I, I watched, yes. like... Harmonious, the one that they have over... Is Harmonious the one they have at uh, Hong Kong? Oh, Momentous. Momentous. Momentous is the one they had at Hong Kong. Harmonious was Epcot. Yeah. Momentous was really, really good. It's like a mixture of like a Disneyland fireworks show with a little world of color added in because they have that moat in Uh front of the castle. Yeah. Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, no, that one makes me think of... um, Disneyland Paris had one for a while. I forgot the name of it, but the ending of it was so spectacular. It was like fantastic, big kind of storyline, but it had like... Peter Pan Shadow as like the character as opposed to Mickey so it was super cool nice this is a national emergency didn't need a charge Giant blowout party with all the Barbies and plant choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. Sounds 
so cool. Do you guys ever think about dying? So today we're here to discuss Barbenheimer. Mm-hmm. That was a phenomenon earlier this year because, like, it wasn't even the studio that had the studios because there were two separate studios that had anything to do with it. It was like this organic online movement uh-huh. that boosted both of the films. Truly, like I'm sure um, Oppenheimer would have done well on its own, but if it wasn't for the pull of Barbie. And people making it like a whole deal and whole literally memes of it of how to plan your day for this movie. Um, <laughs> I don't think it would have received the amount of like money initially as it did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like these are both movies that would have done really well. I mean, mm-hmm. Barbie is an IP that lasted like uh, over half a century. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oppenheimer was done by Christopher Nolan, who has like a very loyal online following. So this is like. Uh, both of those would have done very well, but I feel like this organic movement kind of like they boosted each other mm-hmm. and it, in a big way. Yeah, no, definitely. So I was gonna, I was thinking of doing like each movie separately and then kind of going into uh, yeah. the whole thing about putting pitting them with each other. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. So I'm gonna start with the lighter one, the yes. lighter tone, yes. Barbie. Yes. Directed by Greta Gerwig, famous uh, Academy Award nominee for Little Women, uh, Lady Bird, uh, films like that. She's also done a ton of screenplays before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, excellent, like, very talented writer and director. Mm-hmm. Uh, Noah Baumbach uh, co-wrote with her. Uh, they often work together. Um, Noah Baumbach also wrote, uh, co-wrote Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh, I didn't so, know. So, yeah, very... I mean, that's one of the bigger things he did. Uh, a couple of years ago, he did Marriage Story. So very, uh, also a very talented writer. Attempts to adapt Barbie. They go back all the way to the 1980s with uh, <laughs> Canon Films of all studios. Canon Studios in the 80s, for those who don't know, was one of those that did those cheaply made projects that um, they're, they're kind of known for making like some of the worst movies of the 80s. Like I believe they were behind Superman 4. Uh, they were behind uh, Break Two Electric Boogaloo, <laughs> like the like they're kind of known for those like iconically bad movies from the eighties. Um, the plans to adapt Barbie were dropped after their adaptation of Masters of the Universe flopped. I, I have vague memories of watching that movie, but uh, with Dolph Lundgren as He Man, uh, yeah, that was a that was a time. Uh, Diablo Cody, who wrote Juno, had attempted to make it. Amy Schumer recently attempted to make it. It was one of those things where it's like so many attempts to make this movie have been made. It was one of those, like, are they ever going to make it kind Mm -hmm. of things. Margot Robbie, when she pitched the movie, because she was the one who personally came in to pitch the movie, joked that it would gross over $1 billion. Funny how that joke became a reality. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, let me see. Sets were designed. They were to, in proportion to the actual toy sizes. So you notice that, right? Yeah, like, that definitely was very apparent. What I liked about that was like, you see that whole scene where Barbie just gently floats down from the top floor to her car. It's like, you could imagine like a little kid playing with that doll mm-hmm. and like just putting her down on the floor from the top, the top level into the car. Yeah. And that's like how it's being perceived in Barbie world. Uh huh. Exactly. Because I, what? Not many kids would like make their Barbie go down the stairs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those those Barbie dream houses were not designed exactly to make that easy to do. <laughs> they wouldn't fit. I don't even know if a lot of them have stairs. If they do. <laughs> oh gosh, I remember when I was a kid. Um, I wanted Barbies. It was one of those things where it's like it felt like it wasn't allowed because mm-hmm. you know. Um, I don't know if y'all noticed. I I I am a, I was born a male, mm-hmm. and there, <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> yes, um, the, there was this whole stigma against boys playing with quote girl toys, mm-hmm. and I remember being like this four year old kid wanting to play with Barbies and being told no, that's for girls, and I'm like, what do you mean? These are toys. This had nothing to do with the fact that I'm gay now. 
<laughs> I know, it was gay then too. Oh my god. Nothing to do with that. I just wanted to play with toys. That's yeah. what they were to me. Yes, because I do have memories of playing with like my cousins or like younger cousins, and they did have them, and like it was always fun. Like as, yeah. a lot of times, it was like you know definitely being silly and so on, but it was still like cute, just pretending and stuff like that. And not to mention they're like you know none of the dolls were like in mint condition because <laughs> they yeah. were definitely loved in the sense it was just funny seeing how them and making them walk around and everything yeah that's like my experience with barbie is basically playing like when we visited cousins who had them that's exactly. when i would actually play with them and then they i'd get looks like oh he's playing with barbies i'm like so what they're toys uh-huh. they are toys parents like it's not that serious yeah thankfully i don't have memories of my parents doing that kind of thing i think they're like they were like all catching up with each other. They had, they didn't really pay attention to us in the our cousins' rooms oh. just playing. So they'd only come in to tell us to go eat. So thankfully, from my experience, I don't have that kind of like those are girls' toys kind of thing. At least nothing sticking out. Well, for me, <laughs> it was more like I wanted them like as a birthday gift or something oh, like that. And they were like, "No, you're not getting that." And yeah. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. For me, it was always like just game systems because I had a cousin who was like maybe a couple years older than me, and he was like. Me and my cousin that were, like, the same age, he was, like, the one we looked up to. We idolized him because he had all the video games, and he'd play them, and we weren't allowed to play them. We could only watch him play. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, I know that feeling all too well. And what's funny is, like, the kind of toys I was allowed to play with were, like, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mm -hmm. um, Mm He-Man, things like that. And it's like, well... You're, I'm allowed to play with these, like, ripped, shredded, like, <laughs> muscle-bound dudes. Uh-huh. I'm not saying that made me gay, but um, it definitely uh, kind of... <laughs> Pointed our... Um... <laughs> it, it, I definitely got to explore... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to the movie. <laughs> We know the the song, I'm Just Ken. That was, Mm -hmm. like, the big musical number randomly thrown into, like, the third act of the movie. Yeah. Um, It was originally written as a joke by Mark Ronson. And uh, when Greta Gerwig and Ryan Gosling both heard it, they loved it. Uh, And Gosling himself elevated it with, like, his performance to the point where it became, like, a key scene in the movie. Yeah. And, of course, studios didn't get it. They tried, The execs tried to, like, get her to cut it, and Gerwig fought to keep it in there. It's mm-hmm. like, no, we need this scene. And now it's, like, one of the most iconic scenes of the movie. <laughs> Definitely is. Oh, my gosh. Their outfits, the big room that's, like, reminiscent of, like, old, like, big, big, like, production, like, uh, musicals yeah just them dancing in like a liminal space kind of basically that that whole scene i'm like oh this is like singing in the rain where mm-hmm. he's like the the lady with a flowing gown i'm like yes. it's just like that yes literally the vibe <laughs> yeah and uh shout out to ryan gosling like his singing voice since la la land wow improvement dude took some lessons <laughs> uh <laughs> Another key scene that Gerwig had to fight to keep in there was the scene where Barbie sits down on a park bench and, like, tells an old lady she's beautiful. Um, the re- one of the reasons why is that old lady is uh, Anne Roth, who's a costume designer and, like, a legendary costume designer. Uh, worked on things like The English Patient, The Birdcage, and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Oh, wow, I had no idea. And, yeah, that scene is actually <clears throat> really... Uh, it's really poignant because, it, like, one, it's a character-building scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily like you know her character is growing it's more like it's showing you who barbie is yeah and barbie is just seeing this old lady sitting sitting on a bench and just looking at you like wow you're so beautiful and i don't know what it's if you're not told that often for whatever reason society like deems you past your prime or whatever that is especially if someone is saying that like very genuinely and very like from the heart very like um I, I, what's the word i'm looking for um i i don't remember the word earnestly 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 that's the word i'm looking for uh that is like something that could like change your whole day for the better for reals like it, it's a and and i feel like that really fits in with the whole tone and theme of the movie yeah no i definitely get that feeling for sure and it was so nice to like her response wasn't like oh she has never heard it she was like 
I know. Yeah. It's like, uh, oh, so it's amazing. Yeah. That, that scene is incredible. I'm glad that it got left in there. Mm-hmm. And Same. again, like, not every scene has to advance the plot. I know that that's become kind of a weird discourse thing. It's nonsense. It's complete nonsense. Not every scene needs to advance the plot. If it's something that, like, fits within the tone of the film, if it's something that fits within the theme, it belongs there. Uh, as long as it doesn't hurt the pacing, you're good. And that didn't hurt the pacing at all. Yeah, no, not one bit. Uh, Rodrigo Prieto, uh, the cinematographer of the movie, kind of came up with a unique look for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that movie just looked... There's nothing else that looks like it. Truly. It's so vibrant. Everything was, like, practically perfect yeah. in so many ways. And the pa- color palette is, like, unique to the movie. Yes. Oh, my gosh. It's so bright and vibrant and... It made me think pink. of a... So yeah. very pink. Literally. <laughs> I don't know why it made me think of, like, I remember seeing a, a meme maybe on, like, Twitter or something. It was, like, this this is made with, like, only colors that art students can see. <laughs> <laughs> right? Greta Gerwig actually came up with a name for it. Uh, she calls it Technobarbie. Ooh. Now that totally fits. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, yeah, more movies in Technobarbie, please. Like Literally, yes. Because all these movies today, they they look so drab now. They're like I, so. It's true. It started like with like the, so many like the big budget movies. Like they went from like bright golden like colors to like this blue gray look that you can't even see like that well. Yeah, and it's like guys, studios, studio execs. I I promise you, colors are fine. For real. Y- you can, I, we can see the next Marvel movie in color. It's okay. <laughs> Like, they could be bright. You can, like, put some attention on production design and cinematography, but, like, make it look pretty. Mm-hmm. Ah, like, again, Barbie kind of, like, shows that you can make a movie look bright and colorful, and it could still be successful and be, like, one of the biggest movies of all time. Yeah. Uh, there's, like, a bunch of classic movie references in this. Mm-hmm. The 2001 A Space Odyssey scene is probably the most yeah, popular. They, it was, like, shot for shot. Yeah. The same, from my understanding. The Matrix, obviously, with the Pikachu scene. Mm-hmm. And I love that, that joke where she's like, I want that one. I want to go back. It's like, no. <laughs> it's like, no, you have to know. Try again. You have to pick this one. <laughs> obviously, there's West Side Story and Singing in the Rain and the musical number. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the biggest box office successes. Oh, definitely. Of all time. It felt like it. Because people were making this more than just like, let's go watch it. Like, everyone was like getting dressed up in their outfits, either doing something pink at the bare minimum or dressing up like a Barbie themselves, like a different kind of era. And because she's been around for so long, that I think that helped a lot because not everyone's style fits like the classic pink Barbie, you know? So they had the ability to do like any kind of Barbie and they were a Barbie. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's what's cool about this movie. It's like, obviously, you know, it's based on uh, one of the most recognizable IPs in the whole world. But also, like, Greta Gerwig kind of threw her own artistic voice into it mm-hmm. in a way that it's like, if the trajectory of movies is all IP all the time, the best way we can get, like, around that is to let each filmmaker put their own voice into it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like some of the executives are losing what made Barbie so special. And part a, a big, huge chunk of that was Greta Gerwig. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I get that it's kind of Feminism 101, but mm-hmm. still, it's like, it really throws that message in there, puts it front and center. And one thing I really, really loved about it is that it's not just that feminism, you know, it's it's good for women, but the whole thing about toxic masculinity as presented mm-hmm. through Ken, yep. I feel like that was very sympathetic towards Ken. Yeah, because I know, like, we've, we've had these conversations before, and there's definitely been conversations online about, like, them trying to make Ken seem like this, like, two-dimensional thing. But it's like, no, the only reason he seemed two-dimensional is because he was falling into the whole toxic masculinity thing, which doesn't give, you know, men the permission to be more than that. Yeah, and you can see in every scene, like, how, like, insecure he is. Definitely, right at the beginning. yeah. Like, even, like, as he's, like, trying to overcompensate with the whole boxing gloves thing and Mm -hmm. the Mojo Dojo Casa House and Mm -hmm. uh, just trying to exert, like, his influence, his usage of the song Push by Max Box 20. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) 
all of that kind of like show there's like this undercurrent of like he doesn't know what he's talking about and he knows it and then of course that scene where he like kind of breaks down and the end and you realize like he was really just trying to fit into this image that number one it wasn't him but it was like so much of a so much work and so much of a struggle just to fit that image is it even worth it for real like that whole line one of my favorite lines like as soon as i found out it wasn't all about horses i lost interest <laughs> for real though that like it the way it was done was so good yeah, it was it was amazing, and I'm glad it made as much money as it did. I'm glad mm. it pissed off conservatives because you know, if it pisses off <laughs> conservatives, it's a good movie. Yes, but, if yeah. you, if you don't have these crazy people mad at you, you're doing something wrong. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, like the very emotional scenes towards the end of the movie. Oh god, that movie that 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 ending scene where you go mm-hmm. through all the flashbacks. I'm like. Why am I crying? I know. Why am I crying at Barbie? I don't know what it was. The first, because I saw it twice, because of course I did. Yeah. <laughs> the first one, first time through, I definitely got like emotional, but nothing like sh- like shedding a tear kind of thing. But definitely the second time, I think it's because I was paying more attention to like things I missed maybe in the first round. And that part got me. Yeah. It got me. <laughs> and yeah, the, the whole thing is like, it's showing what Barbie is supposed to represent. I know mm-hmm. that there's this whole thing about like Barbie kind of like putting on like unrealistic body expectations for women mm-hmm. and they even made a joke about that yeah the yeah. whole the whole brats scene yes literally the the girls being named brats characters which is <laughs> perfect because they were so like not yes. that they were saying was wrong but it was definitely to the extreme and they had points that were definitely valid and being made but just to have Barbie breaking down. They called um, me a fascist. Like, I don't control. <laughs> I don't control the railways. And I'm like, oh my God. Yes, that was one of my favorite. Because I felt so bad in the moment for Barbie. And then they really cut the, the humor with her saying those kinds of things. It was like, not that she's unaware of what's happening or what those things. But just to say that, it's like, oh my God. It, it brought me down <laughs> to yeah. like laughing. And I love how sometimes it would break tension by, like, having Barbie move in a way that Barbie can move. Like, that one part where she's, like, about to give up, and then her legs go long, and then she sits down and falls over like she's an actual Barbie yes. doll. <laughs> that part was really cool and very well directed. And it wasn't, like, overdone. It was, like, perfect for the scene. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. And I think that's it on Barbie. We're going to move on okay. to Oppenheimer. A uh, very pink movie. No, <laughs> Not even close. Directed by the internet's favorite director, Christopher Nolan. Uh, so the thing about Christopher Nolan, I love him. Excellent filmmaker. I know there's like a bit of a pushback towards him because IMDb has dubbed him like the best director of all time. Not an actual poll, but like all of his movies are on the top 250. You can bet that if he makes a movie, it's going to be on there. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a bit of a pushback on that because it's like, well, we're too good for this. Like, obviously. Like, uh, you know, that's sort of like snobbery with... Uh-huh. It, it's, it's a weird thing, but honestly, he is a very talented filmmaker. Yes. I mean... I'm not going to say he's the best of all time, but I'm going to say he is one of the best of all time. And I say that I say that without any irony or anything like that. Uh-huh. Uh, based on American Prometheus, Oppenheim- Oppenheimer, formatted for IMAX, and I mean, like, true IMAX. Yeah. Not, like, IMAX where you could go to your local theater and see it. I mean, you have to, like, find the theater that has the big, giant, giant IMAX screen to get the full experience, mm-hmm. which we did. Yes. I didn't watch Oppenheimer right away because I wanted to wait for the true experience of it. Yeah, and, I mean, we had to. <laughs> oh, my gosh, we had to wait weeks because those theaters were sold out I know. for, was, like, two weeks. It was bonkers. Like, AMC only had one theater that had it true i think when when yeah we had to like go all the way to hollywood yeah universal <laughs> yeah we had to go to the universal city walk to see it uh we had to wait two weeks and even then we were like close to the front yeah i mean it was amazing it looked incredible yeah definitely it was definitely worth going there to see it i yeah. wish we could have said a little further back but it was still like oh my god every scene was like in your face <laughs> because yeah of how close we were and just how massive the screen was and uh, it kind of like goes back and forth between color and black and white. What I did not know is that they Kodak had to produce a special film stock to make that happen. 
Because for IMAX, you're using 70 millimeter film. Yeah. Like, which is twice Huge. as big as a normal film strip. Uh, they didn't have that in black and white. So Kodak had to, like, make it in black and white. Christopher Nolan famously likes to shoot on film. Mm-hmm. So that, that was kind of an interesting thing. Uh, this biopic is obviously based on J. Robert Oppenheimer. Uh, another interesting thing is the screenplay was written in a first-person perspective, which oh. I don't think I've ever heard of that happening in a screenplay. Because the screenplay is like basically directions and dialogue, but I guess the directions were like from Oppenheimer's point of view. Hmm. Which is interesting because the movie was very much Oppenheimer's point of view. Yeah, no, definitely. Like the, there was like this this idea of, um, and then they got some criticism for this too, which uh, mainly not showing the actual bombings. Yeah. But my take on that is, do you want to see the actual bombings that bad? I mean, I could see how people would argue like the the world needs to face this dark side. But in the point of the story, I could see, like, it doesn't seem... Not that it doesn't seem necessary. I don't know. Like... So I could see the, I could see the argument. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, this is Oppenheimer. It's because the whole reason Nolan made this is because he got this book um, of his speeches where he could kind of see Oppenheimer grappling with the philosophical and very real implications of, yeah. of his work. And that's what interested him. So that's what the movie is mainly about, is like someone who used science to create this awesome and destructive force, Mm -hmm. and then like realizing what that was used for, and having to live with that. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, and so it was a very um, introspective kind of movie, which didn't really focus on much outside of Oppenheimer's perspective. So I think part of that, with writing the screenplay in the first person, really drives that home, like, this is from his point of view. Yeah. It was Robert Pattinson who gave Nolan that book uh, while they were filming Tenet. Oh, cool. Yeah. I had no idea. Uh, it is the highest grossing uh, biographical film of all time, mm-hmm. uh, beating out Bohemian Rhapsody, mm-hmm. which that was also a pretty big movie when that came out, from what I remember. Yeah. I don't yeah. think I saw that one, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this movie was amazing. Uh, until maybe about last week, I was actually calling it my favorite movie of the year. Uh, it did just get dethroned. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, after watching Killers of the Flower Moon. Sorry, Nolan, I kind of think Scorsese got it this year. Yeah. Uh, for now, for now. Um, but still, it is an excellent movie. It was worth waiting for to see in true IMAX. Yes, definitely. Um, I have nothing bad to say about it. Like, the acting was great. The The way it was shot, the way it was edited... Obviously not fully his style of, uh, you know, jumping, the time jumps, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And the black and white and color kind of, like, denoting that. That goes, like, all the way back to Memento. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I think from Christopher Nolan, it's, like, top tier. Yeah. Uh, no, there's no denying that part. It was a fantastic movie and a fantastic story. So what was it that brought these two very different movies together? Um... I think the fact that they were released the same weekend, so counter-programming, kind of a common practice where you kind of like release two movies in the same week that would attract different audiences. The thing is, uh, funny enough, you put Greta Gerwig and Christopher Nolan in a movie theater together, uh, film-loving audiences are going to want to see both. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Like, uh, yeah, Barbie and Oppenheimer are way different, but like... For me, someone like me, I'm like, I'm excited about both of these movies. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I of course, I made it a point to see both. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, with the, especially lately with like TikTok and just more more and more people are voicing their opinions on, on social media sites like Twitter and stuff. It was, it just made sense that um, maybe that's, it started, like you said, with the film loving people who like love and appreciate both of those directors and their storytelling abilities like you know making jokes about it online and then people are like running with it because it's like these are totally polar opposite styles of like you know films and stories that um you know you're gonna have a good time either way so let's just make some make it like fun (laughs) 
And also, this isn't the first time, like, Christopher Nolan has been involved with this kind of counter-programming. Like, mm-hmm. The Dark Knight was released the same weekend as Mamma Mia. Oh, yeah. So like, there was that, where it's like, this is kind of a thing. Uh-huh. Um, the marketing was largely online and organic. It mm-hmm. didn't come from the studios. The studios would never think to do this. They're trying now. I'm watching this happen now, and I'm like, this isn't going to work. Yeah. Like, it's not going to work because it's not organic. Literally, You're trying to make it's it out. that whole meme, silence brand. Right. <laughs> like Saw Patrol and uh, what was... There was another one where they put, like, two independent movies together, and I think one of them actually got terrible reviews, and I'm just like, stop, stop, no, you can't do this. You're not allowed. Yeah, it doesn't work. You it can't, just seems you cannot, cold. This is like catching lightning in a bottle. You can't force this to happen. Mm-hmm, I mean, yeah, the Barbie and Oppenheimer were fortunate enough to come out in a very specific moment in time. Yeah, <laughs> there's no denying that... Um the memes and everything that like brought the attention for Barbie and Oppenheimer together helped both movies yes. greatly. Yeah. Uh, and also there was a big, a bit of a double feature effect where oh like we, we discussed this, like yeah. the, there was like a whole thing where like you would try to watch both movies on the same day. Yes. And well, you had to start with Oppenheimer because we all knew that that one was going to be a bummer of a movie. Yeah. Not like it was bad. Just like, you know, you're going to leave that theater like, wanting a cigarette <laughs> yeah well that was the joke too right yeah. coffee and a cigarette for yeah. breakfast then you go to the matinee <laughs> that one then you go to a drag brunch after because you're gonna need some levity yeah then you go see the um the later show of barbie. the later show of barbie and then go to the gay club after <laughs> and this was such a well before i get there this isn't the first time I've seen, like, organic online marketing coming from fans. I remember seeing it a while back for Snakes on a Plane. Uh-huh. Uh, I remember Snakes on a Plane when that came out. Like, everyone was excited because someone had the audacity to release a movie called Snakes on a Plane starring Samuel L. Jackson, where I've had it with these snakes on this plane. <laughs> and, of course, he says it in the movie, and mm-hmm. it became iconic. But the thing is, the movie, I don't remember doing that well. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember too much about it. I don't think I've seen it personally. Yeah. It's good. It's fun. It's very campy, uh, as, yeah. as a movie called Snakes <laughs> on a Plane should be. It's, the title is very much Sharknado. Yeah, like, very much vibes. Cocaine Bear. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this time, with Oppenheimer and Barbie, Barbenheimer, uh-huh. you had the fourth largest American box office of all time, Uh Weirdly enough, both movies kind of explore existentialism. Yeah, no, definitely. I that feel is... like a lot of movies lately are going down that path. Yeah, that is like the one thing that ties them together. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it makes sense considering like audiences are like... A lot of our, at least people people in our generation or they are the older directors that are there. I mean, they're not... I mean, Greta Gerwig's not... She's like basically around our age. Yeah. Yeah, but um, like Christopher Nolan, they're seeing like what like... I mean, who was the one that influenced him to make this story was, like you said, Robert Pattinson told him about it. So it's like, you know, our, I feel like people like around our age are going through these existential crises left and right. So it makes sense that we're drawn to movies like this. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that too. Like even movies like Everything Everywhere All at Once, Mm -hmm. where like you kind of like, it does force you to think about like generational trauma and stuff like that and what that means and what it means to like come to terms with it and make peace with it. Yeah. So, like, right now, it's, like, more, like, maybe it's not so much the uh, generational trauma this time, although a little bit with Barbie. I saw that just a tad. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, it's definitely had a touch of it. Yeah. With, yeah. But, yeah, that was that was, that was was an interesting thing. Um, this is also, like, one of the... What makes that weekend, that opening weekend, so interesting is, like, these... Neither one of these movies is a sequel. Mm-hmm. Like, these are all, like, first parts um really hoping they don't make a sequel to barbie i I feel like it ended perfectly uh greta gerwig has no interest as far as i could tell um and again obviously the studio is going to try because studio is going to studio yeah i mean right out the gate they got completely got the point wrong let's make an expanded universe yeah let's make more let's make more um movies like about mattel things i'm like it wasn't that that wasn't it (laughs) It's like, yeah, it's Barbie. Yeah, sure. Barbie is a big IP, but now the way Greta Gerwig made that movie, it's like one and done. We yeah, got it. It's truly. it. That's all we need. Yeah. I want to I wanna talk to my gynecologist. Like, 
that's it. That's the end of her story. You can't Literally. go anywhere else from there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's her story, and that's it. Yeah. On her own. And obviously Oppenheimer, you know. Oh, wait, hold on. Oppenheimer rises. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, that, that's, not, that's not happening. Um, no, both of these were great movies, though. And I'm actually really glad this movement happened. Um, again, lightning in a bottle. You cannot recreate it. Um, I'm just excited to see if anything else happens in the future, like, similar to this. Again, once again, studios, you can't do it. Yeah. No. That's the thing. The reason this worked is because it came from the fans. It came from people who love movies. Literally. It's like you have to just, you do your normal thing, and then if it happens again, that's at, at the after point, then you capitalize on that. But you can't make it. It's going to come off, like, cold and heartless and yeah. not real. Clearly, you're trying to make money. Yeah. On the other hand, what I will say is this kind of shows that this whole thing where you have all these studios being rivals and competitors and trying to outdo each other, that this isn't the kind of industry you do that in. Literally. Like, Universal and Warner Brothers both benefited from Barbenheimer True. in a big way. Uh -huh. And they owe so much of the success of those movies to... Obviously, yes, the filmmakers who made them. Mm -hmm. uh, pay your writers, pay your actors. Exactly. Um, but also the fans online who made Barbenheimer happen. Mm -hmm. And when you realize, like, it's not... These studios could make so many better movies if they just would work together. Yeah. Like, I remember Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, I was literally thinking about that. <laughs> Disney and Warner Brothers, famous competitors in the animation market, decided to put aside those differences to put Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny together on the screen for the first, and in my opinion, or my opinion, my recollection, only time. Yeah. Uh, and it was magic. That movie was a miracle. Mm -hmm. uh, then you have recently two movies that could have, they were good. They were very good. They could have been better if they had studios working together to make them happen. Ralph Breaks the Internet mm -hmm. and Ready Player One. I think they came out the same year? I think so. Warner Brothers and Disney had an opportunity to work together on both of those movies to put together their IP in ways that you would never see them come together. And both of them were like, nah, we don't want to do it. Yeah. So Ready Player One had to like stick with mainly like Warner Brothers IP. They might have thrown in a couple things here and there, but like the only thing they were able to use from Disney was like to reference the Millennium Falcon. Whereas Ralph Breaks the Internet, again, had to stick with Disney IP, which I'm like, you're on the internet. The internet is not just Disney. For real. Yeah. So, it makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, it's like, these were two movies. They were good. On their own right, they were good. They could have been better if these studios had chosen to work together. And that's, mm -hmm. again, this whole thing where it's like, this competition thing, audiences don't care. Audiences, they really don't. We, we don't care if it's a universal... And again, these, the other thing that the reason why we don't care is these aren't products. Mm -hmm. This is art. Yep. So like, we don't care that something is universal. We don't care that something is Warner Brothers or that's Disney. We just care about the art. So if like you work together, that's going to benefit all of you. For reals. Yeah. That's my soapbox moment there. No, but you're right. You're right. And you should say it. <laughs> it's so true. You know, like. They, at least the, the trend that it seems to be with, like, executive leadership in all of these, like, production companies, or, or not, like, yeah, like, in all of those um, studios and stuff, it's just about getting the most money out no matter what, and it it's, like, like you've said, like, this is an art form, it's not how art is supposed to work. Yeah, and again, I, this is part of my concern with why they're viewing this as a product, because, again, you're having all of these studios, they're making... I just saw yesterday the movie Passing. It was on Netflix. It's one of the best movies from a couple years ago. It's leaving Netflix. Oh, my God. And there is no other way you can see that movie. It wasn't released to any kind of physical media. It was a Netflix original movie, and it's leaving Netflix. Oh, my gosh. And it's like, how does that make any sense? It's like, put it on DVD. Put it on Blu-ray. People will buy it. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I get that money is like your number one your number one thing, you could make more money if you put it on Blu-ray. <laughs> it's true, though. It's like, ugh, okay. 
Off the soapbox. <laughs> we'll move on. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. And I want to have them answered immediately. And we actually did get a couple questions today. Uh, one of, both of them came from friends of the show. Uh, first one being Taylor B. from Myers Skin and Marine episode. Did either movie affect your perspectives on anything? If so, what and how? Hmm. Well, let me think. Part of me wants to start with Oppenheimer just because um, that's definitely like the heavier of the two movies. Um, it was interesting seeing like the perspective of this man that like, well, of not his exact perspective. There's definitely things that were left out that we haven't that you have to look up like historically seeing about how oh, he of was. Of course, that's person. true about every biopic. Yeah, though. I mean, it, it literally, you even for a three-hour movie, you can't fit someone's entire life yeah. in a three-hour movie. That's impossible. But um, I mean, just learning about like the way, like all the barriers that he faced to like get to this point, and then even after he did it and succeeded, how the government didn't care about his opinions it's like he literally built this thing and you're not going to take any of his concerns seriously like yeah. they literally called him a crybaby yeah it's like oh my gosh like it's insane to think about that that kind of thing i also think yeah it's both movies actually kind of did this to me where i kind of like it, it kind of shows that people are complicated mm-hmm like, Oppenheimer, obviously a genius, obviously created one of the most destructive weapons ever known, and we are actually still dealing with the ramifications of that. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember one of the jokes I saw online, is there a post credit scene to Oppenheimer, and someone said, baby, you're living in it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, you realize, like, this is also a human being, mm -hmm. and just going off of that book of speeches that, like, uh, Christopher Nolan, that... Uh, inspired Christopher Nolan to make this movie. Uh, he definitely did grapple with the implications of it. Mm -hmm. And it's something that, I don't know, if I had done something similar, I don't know if I'd be able to live with that. Honestly. Even if, like, the country, like, spends so much time, like, idolizing you and holding you up, which history classes did that. Mm -hmm. History classes really did like gloss over the number of people who died because of those bombs yeah. because that also meant we won the war uh again what expense literally and was it even necessary like the now we're having those conversations mm -hmm. um there's that I, I, I don't know if i'd be able to live with myself if that were the case uh even barbie when it like looks into toxic masculinity and all of that stuff that it's yeah. like not only I'm not going to say that every person is going to be reachable, but yeah. in the case of Ken, like you do have to like look into some of like the underlying things that might push someone to gravitate towards that. Mm -hmm. And it is a complicated thing, but also like society kind of fails men as not, I don't want to say as much as it fails women, but it does fail yeah. men a lot. Yes. Because it really puts on this whole, you are defined by how successful you are, who you sleep with, mm -hmm. who, uh, I don't know, how many horses you have, <laughs> uh, oh my gosh. how much like Rocky you are. I don't know. Literally. Um, how tough you are. And it's like, that is such an exhausting thing to have to like live up to when honestly, just be a good person, mm -hmm. be kind to other people. Like, manhood doesn't have to be, like, toxic masculinity. Yeah. And that that that's kind of, like, my perspective on that. Yeah. No, for reals. I... Uh, that's the thing, like, you know, being, like, a gay man, I feel like that kind of story, seeing it, like... Not that it doesn't resonate, but, like, we... Uh, not everyone. There's definitely some men, gay men that have toxic masculinity living through yes. their veins. Yes. But at least when it comes to us... Um, that's not our experiences. We are we are people who are affected by the the people who do like embody those things a lot. Um, so just seeing it like seeing his struggles of like going through this and at the end when he is like even Barbie's like, I can't help you with this. This is something you have to do on your own. It was just like 
I don't know. It was really cool to see it. And, you know, of course, like we got the best line, the I am Kinna. I am Kinna. At, <laughs> at the end, which was really cool. Yeah. That was... And also, yeah, it does kind of show that, like, sometimes you can reach someone mm-hmm. who kind of, like, went down that road and just kind of, like, appeal to their better nature. Is it going to work every time? No. Mm-hmm. But it worked for Ken, and mm-hmm. it's going to work for somebody. So that, that doesn't mean don't try. You know what I mean? Yeah. Try. <laughs> no, definitely. I definitely get that. I, I know I felt a certain way, definitely, after watching both movies. Yeah. The other question comes from friend of the show, Clark Silva, uh, from our Phantom of the Opera episode. Uh, how well do you think each film would have done if they were released at different dates? I mean, I feel like I briefly mentioned it, like, at the beginning. Like, I feel like if they were released on different days and the whole Barbenheimer thing didn't happen, Barbie, Barbie would probably still have done better, like, globally, just because it's more of, like, an approachable, like, people are going to take their families to see it, um and so on it's like more of an approachable kind of a movie um not to say that Oppenheimer wouldn't have done well on its own like we like we've said um Christopher Nolan has a lot of a big fan base and a lot of people are interested in these kinds of like heavier stories especially something as dramatic as the atomic bomb like there's gonna be an audience there but the magic of both of them together I mean let's be honest if it wasn't for Barbie I don't think Oppenheimer would have done as well as uh, it did. I will agree with that. Yeah. I feel like Barbie gave Oppenheimer a boost that even <laughs> they that they, they were not expecting it to make that much money. <laughs> they knew it was going to be big. They knew it was going to get like that those Nolan bucks. Yeah. But it would honestly Barbie gave that a boost. Um, honestly, I feel like Oppenheimer would have even done better if it weren't a three plus hour movie. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like. It's better because it is a three-plus-hour movie. Yeah, we get like, to see more. Um, for me, it's not even all about all about the box office, but it is kind of interesting to see like how this phenomenon helped both movies, which I do feel would have been successful on their own outside of Bob and yeah. Barbenheimer. But Barbenheimer like probably amplified that by at least double, if not yeah. more. Yeah, no, there's. I feel like to to deny that would be like a big lie. Like, yeah, it's like come on. Yeah. And again, Barbie being one of the biggest, most recognizable IPs in the world, obviously that would have made money, but yeah. now you have like, yeah, you made a whole, we made a whole thing out of it. So now everybody, it's everybody's uh, American duty, civic, <laughs> to watch both of these films. The event of the year. It was right? literally the event of the year and you had to do it. Yeah, exactly. Riddle me this, riddle me that. Who's afraid of the big black that brings us to our rotating segment which i think we're gonna have some fun with taglines so the the whole thing about taglines is i'm gonna read you out some taglines and see if you can guess what movie it is based on how they advertised it i'll try my best (laughs) all right i'm gonna start with less less obvious ones and then kind of like move on to ones that might explain more about what the movie's about okay uh, let's see. The Graceful Dead. The Graceful Dead? Yeah. Oh, by the way, it is Halloween weekend that we're recording this, so I'm kind of sticking within the theme of Halloween-based movies or, you know, spooky stuff. Okay. Huh. My brain, I'm probably way off yeah. this one. It yeah. goes to, um, what was it, Black Swan? No. no. Okay, I figured it wasn't going to be that. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh... Rising to the Occasion. Is that another? That's another one, yeah. For the same movie? Same movie. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to be good at this, especially if it's like, is it a horror movie? Uh, it has spooky things in it, but I wouldn't say it's horror specifically. Uh, I don't know. Throw him a bone. <laughs> I'm, I'm throwing you the less obvious ones first. No, I know. Kind of go... Yeah, I figured. I'm like, I feel like I'm getting further away from Oh yeah, trust that one's like I probably should have started with that one because I'm like that's not gonna really help at all. Uh, let's see. Loving you is like loving the dead. Oh my gosh, is it about zombies? Kind, kind of close. 
I'm struggling here. A grave p- proposal. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm also not like the biggest like horror movie person, so I'm like, I know it's not horror. I mean, I, I, when you say it, I'm probably gonna be like, oh my god. Can a heart still break once it stopped beating? Oh my gosh. I, this is, this is sounding familiar, but I'm not sure. Okay, so the way uh, IMDb has this listed as two separate. Mm-hmm. Actually, before I go to that one, there's been a grave misunderstanding. Hmm. Okay, so the posters, <laughs> this was two separate posters. IMDb has this set as like two different taglines, but they are connected. So I'm going to put them together. The love of his life, the love of her afterlife. I'm going to start giving you a hint on this one. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it is an animated movie. Huh. Oh, is it... Uh, I don't know. Is it animated, like, stop motion? Yep. Oh, is it The Corpse Bride? That's it. Oh, you my got gosh. Corpse Bride. Uh, I saved that one for last because I'm like, that one kind of makes it the most obvious. So yeah. I'm like, I should tell you it's animated, too, so you're not, like, thinking, like, some kind of, like, live-action comedy or something. <laughs> I kind of, like, intended to make this a little more difficult, because the last time I did this, like... They got it right They got it right away. I'm like, (laughs) oh, I thought I did the less obvious one first. (laughs) But, yeah, that's... Yeah, you got it. Cool. (laughs) So, is... Before we go... Before we end our uh, show for the day, is there anything else you would like to plug? Hmm. Or any social media accounts you want to where we could find you on social media or anything like that? Oh, like, I haven't looked at my... What's my Instagram? <laughs> Trust. Oh, it's yeah. like remembering phone numbers in these Literally. days. Um, but yeah, if you guys want to follow me, um, it's edworld15, because uh, my name's Edmundo, so Mundo, Spanish for world, so... It took I'm, me years to come up with that, so... I'm still embarrassed <laughs> by how long it took me to get it. It's like, Edmundo, oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, edworld15, um... On Instagram, that's like the main one, basically. I don't really do too much there. You just see my my little life and and us together. Yeah, surprise. By the way, he's my boyfriend. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was really fun recording with you. I'm glad we got to do this. Yeah, me too. I thought it appropriate with this film, these films, which we both watched together. Yes, and they were amazing. Yeah, I I really had I really enjoyed watching them. I enjoyed doing this episode of the podcast with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you so much, and for all of you back home, I hope you are not just entertained, but somehow reborn together.